You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the February 12th edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot going on in sports, both on and off the field. We had the Super Bowl yesterday, the biggest event in the NFL and basically the American sports calendar. So there's lots of football news to get into, especially some of the off-season trades and hirings. We've got some baseball news. Springs training is getting underway. Some news on the basketball front and some golfing news, as well as a few things going on with the Olympics. So let's jump right in. Hope you had a chance to tune in to the Super Bowl yesterday. This article is written by Bill Barnwell. He's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out this morning on ESPN.com. Is the twist ending better than the one you can see coming from a mile away? For most of Sunday's Super Bowl 58 between the 49ers and the Chiefs, it felt like the game that we were watching was entirely different from what we would have expected to see from these teams. A matchup of the NFL's most dominant offense against the best quarterback of this generation was producing field goals and needed trick plays to generate touchdowns. The coach, who has been excoriated for staying conservative, got aggressive and put his team in position to win the game. Weaknesses were playing out as strengths and vice versa on both sides of the ball. And then, as the game faded into the second half and entered the first enhanced overtime period in playoff history, the course corrected. Everything or just about everything that 49ers fans feared about their chances came true. Given opportunities to strike the fatal blow, Kyle Shanahan and the Niners weren't able to close the door on their rivals, and while they narrowly escaped Patrick Mahomes' first attempt at winning the game, they weren't able to survive a second time. In the end, as they so often are, the Holmes and the Chiefs were inevitable. To understand how the Chiefs were able to come back and claim their third Super Bowl title in five years, we need to talk about how this game defied expectations before eventually being decided by many of the factors that we would have counted on heading into the game. So let's start with the big one, the surprises that got turned upside down. The 49ers have a good defense, but after being chewed up for stretches by the Packers and Lions over the past two weeks, the expectation was that the Chiefs would find ways to move the ball against Steve Wiltz's unit. Mahomes and company haven't been the most consistent offense this postseason, but they moved the ball well against the Dolphins and Bills and scored two early touchdowns with brilliant drives against the Ravens. Here, they were flailing for most of the first half. Their first four drives produced a 52-yard completion on a pass to safety Tashawn Gibson, and that seemed to lose in the that. The pass that he seemed to lose in the stadium lights, but they generated 37 net yards on their 14 other plays. As Isaiah Pacheco fumbled on first and goal at the 49ers' nine-yard line, contributed to Kansas City going scoreless on those opening possessions. 
Mahomes and the offense failed to score a touchdown on any of their first nine drives, which is just the fourth time that that's happened in 113 Mahomes starts. One of those prior three games, ominously enough, was the blowout loss to the Bucks in Super Bowl 50, 55. For most of the day, Kansas City's game plan simply didn't work. The Chiefs projected to have an advantage running the football on the 49ers, who had struggled to stop Aaron Jones and David Montgomery earlier in the postseason. They didn't. Even with 49ers linebacker Drake Greenslaw sadly suffering a torn Achilles while running onto the field in the first half, the Chiefs couldn't move the chains with their conventional running game. Pacheco carried the ball 18 times for 59 yards, but those runs generated a season-worst minus 12 expected points added. Pacheco was stuffed on a pair of third-and-one opportunities. One produced a punt, while the other forced the Chiefs to convert a fourth-and-one for, for their playoff lives in overtime. He also lost the aforementioned fumble in the red zone and dropped a pitch at the start of the second half to put the team behind schedule. The explosive Chiefs from the past could still terrify opposing defenses in third and long, but these Chiefs now needed Mahomes' magic to bail them out in these situations. The 49ers were able to end drives with easy stops on third and 12, third and 14, and third and 16 early in the first half, while a third and 12 in the third quarter produced a rare, awful throw from Mahomes and an interception by Jair Brown. So what changed? The Chiefs found concepts that worked and went back to them in overtime. If you were paying close attention to this game or last year's Super Bowl, you saw three ideas that helped bail out the Chiefs and get them conversions. They didn't find a lot of solutions against the 49ers, but what worked once worked for them again. Naturally, that starts with the final play and the return of an old friend. Horn dog motion, with the wide receiver coming in motion like he's about to run a jet sweep before quickly returning in the opposite direction, creating an unexpected movement to try to defend on the fly. That tactic produced two critical red zone touchdowns for the Chiefs in their victory over the Eagles in Super Bowl 57. Well, the league has had a year to prepare for Andy Reid to bring back his corn dog, and it arrived at the right time. On the final snap of the game, the Chiefs brought Hardman in motion before having him return in the other direction at the snap and shooting out into the flat. Tight ends Noah Gray and Travis Kelsey served as distractions and potential picks for the defensive backs. Cornerback Charvarius Ward took Kelsey, while safety Logan Ryan unexpectedly playing as slot corner after the 49ers decided to bench Ambry Thomas for the Super Bowl, wasn't able to react quickly enough to get to Hardman. The former Jets wideout waltzed into the end zone for the title-clinching score. This wasn't the only repeat performance from the Chiefs. On third and seven, with 16 seconds left in regulation, and star linebacker Fred Warner lined up tight on Kelsey, Kansas City went to a core concept for just about every offense, mesh, where the main components are two crossing routes that attempt to pick off man coverage 
a wheel route to stretch linebackers and some sort of vertical route behind the crossovers to beat zone defense. Most teams don't have two tight ends quick enough to run mesh, but Gray picked Warner without ever touching the San Francisco linebacker, and Kelsey ran away from the defense for 22 critical yards. Warner got a modicum of revenge by stopping Kelsey on the next play to force a field goal and overtime, but this turned a difficult field goal attempt into a chip shot. When they faced third and six in overtime, guess what they ran again? This time, they ran mesh with Rashi Rice and Richie James as the crossers. With the 49ers playing cover, cover O, with man defense across the board, Rice got open quickly and ran away from the coverage for a critical 13-yard completion to get into San Francisco territory. Six plays later, the Chiefs were champs again. The most unique wrinkle might have been Reed loosening the restrictions on Mahomes as a designed runner. The Chiefs took their quarterback sneaks out of the playbook after Mahomes suffered a knee injury on one on one play in 2019, first running them with tight ends before essentially abandoning sneaks altogether. When he then suffered a concussion while running a speed option in the playoff win over the Browns in January of 2021, Reed seemed to shy away further from plays in which Mahomes is designed to keep the football. I believe the Chiefs have dialed up a total of just four designed runs for Mahomes over the ensuing 60 games. Well, if there was ever a time to play against tendencies and take a risk, it's in the Super Bowl with a struggling offense. The Chiefs went to a triple option concept with Mahomes, and it produced two valuable conversions. With Nick Bosa crashing down to try to take away the run from the backside, they took advantage of Bosa's aggressiveness by reading him on a zone read concept. When he chased after Clyde Edwards' Hilaire, Mahomes faked his handoff and kept the ball. He has the option to throw the ball into the flat to Gray, but when a defender also chases after Gray, he kept it and ran untouched for 22 yards. This was the longest run of the game for the Chiefs and set up their first points of the second half. Fast forward to overtime and the fourth and one that could have won the 49ers the Super Bowl. With his season on the line, Reed called the exact same triple option concept. This time, it was Pacheco on the zone run and Kelsey in the flat. But once Bosa began to chase down Pacheco and Ryan took Kelsey in the flat, Mahomes moseyed upfield for nine easy yards to extend the game. I'm not picking on Bosa, who was excellent all day and was just following responsibilities. With a quarterback who doesn't keep on run concepts, defenders are always going to try to chase down a run from the backside and abandon the quarterback. Reed might have remembered his team's heartbreaking loss to the Colts in the 2013 playoffs when the Chiefs went up 38-10 before eventually losing 45-44. Quarterback Andrew Luck converted a critical fourth down early in the comeback by unexpectedly keeping the ball on a zone run and gaining 21 easy yards. That sort of tendency breaker can be a source of much-needed big play at the right time, and it helped save Kansas City on Sunday. Surprise? The 49ers slowed down Mahomes as a scrambler and improviser for most of the game. 
In my preview, I wrote about how Mahomes had thrived in the newest version of the Chiefs' offense by essentially becoming unsackable. The 49ers had a great defensive line, but they had been criticized for their performance against the run, and Mahomes' ability to avoid sacks and extend plays presented the possibility of neutralizing San Francisco's biggest strength. For most of the day, the 49ers won that battle. Wilkes clearly instilled an emphasis on maintaining rush lane security and encouraged his linemen to contain Mahomes in the pocket as opposed to attempting to sack him. Bosa and others repeatedly laid in wait for the quarterback to try to escape, then chasing down the future Hall of Famer before he could find an open receiver. San Francisco didn't blitz Mahomes once in the first half, but it still managed to pressure him seven times. One of those plays produced a 21-yard completion to Justin Watson, but Mahomes was sacked twice, had two scrambles well short of the sticks on third and long, and committed an intentional grounding penalty. The 49ers were thriving on defense. What changed? They slowed down, made mistakes, and didn't find blitzes that worked. In the second half, that plan broke down. Chase Young twisted inside on a third and four, allowing Mahomes to loop to that side for his first scramble conversion of the day. The Niners then dropped Young into the flat in coverage on a sim pressure, and while Oren Burks got Mahomes off his spot, he was able to scramble for another first down. The third and one scramble for 19 yards in overtime that set up the game-winning touchdown was a moment of brilliance from Kelsey and Mahomes, who foiled the 49ers' plot to contain him by scrambling directly up the middle. The 49ers rushed four, but Warner ran on one crosser with Rice, while Ryan ran with Kelsey. Mahomes likely saw enough space to pick up a couple of yards and move the chains. But when Kelsey saw Mahomes beginning to run, he broke off his crossing route and ran directly upfield like he was trying to score a touchdown. Ryan turned his back and chased after Kelsey, freeing up Mahomes to turn what should have been a short gain into a 19-yard back-breaking scramble. As it did the last time these two teams played in the Super Bowl, San Francisco's four-man rush wore down after the third quarter. The 49ers pressured Mahomes without blitzing on 46% of their dropbacks through three quarters. That mark fell to just 19% in the fourth quarter and in overtime. Wilkes noticed and dialed up five blitzes in the second half, four of which came on third downs. Mahomes went 5-of-5 five five against the blitz for 42 yards, including the third down conversion to Jarek McKinnon on the final drive of the fourth quarter and the aforementioned throw to Rice that moved the chains in overtime. Surprise, the 49ers special teams did some great things. One obvious point of weakness for San Francisco was supposed to be its special teams unit, which ranked well below the Chiefs by stats such as DVOA and the EPA. Rookie kicker Jake Moody had missed at least one kick in each of his postseason appearances, and this didn't feel like the sort of game that Niners fans would want to see turned into a kicking and field position contest. Instead, the 49ers made some big plays. Moody hit a 55-yard kick to open the scoring in the first quarter, and after the offense stalled out with 153 to go, 
He hit from 53 yards to give the 49ers a 19-16 lead. Led by Chris Conley, San Francisco's coverage units did a great job of limiting James to a total of 12 yards on four punt returns as Mitch Wisnowski matched Tommy Townsend punt for punt with both players producing five punts for exactly 254 yards. What changed? Yet again, special teams came back to bite the 49ers. Moody appeared to be at fault when a low extra point attempt was blocked by Chiefs linebacker Leo Chanel in the fourth quarter, keeping the game within three points at 16-13. The teams then traded field goals before hitting overtime. While we don't know how the game would have played out if the Chiefs were down four as opposed to three, blocking an extra point obviously made things easier for Reed's team. While the Chiefs were flailing on offense, a turnover helped get them back into the contest. While both teams lost promising possessions to fumbles by their running backs and they each muffed a punt, James fell on his near disaster. The 49ers weren't so lucky. A Townsend punt bounced off of the foot of unknowingly, unknowing San Francisco cornerback Daryl Luther, and while Ray Ray McLeod tried to clean up the mess, the Chiefs fell on the football for a massive swing of field position. Mahomes hit Marquez Valdez Cantling for a touchdown pass on the following snap to give the Chiefs their first lead of the game. In the simplest analysis, those two plays swung eight points towards the Chiefs. Nobody is ever comfortable with the role of luck in winning or losing football games, but we know fumble recoveries are random, and they sure played a big role yesterday. The Chiefs recovered six of the seven fumbles that hit the ground, and while sloppy fumbles on offense cost them points, they benefited greatly from having the opening 49ers drive zapped by a Christian McCaffrey fumble and getting handed a short field by Luther's mistake. Surprise! The unexpected hero of the game appears to be Juan Jennings. For all of the chatter deservingly afforded San Francisco's incredible group of playmakers, Jennings was the guy who made big plays on Sunday. He threw a pass to McCaffrey on a throwback screen for the game's first touchdown, then ran through a luxurious sneak tackle on a slant for a receiving score. He converted a third and five with a broken tackle, started off the final drive of regulation with a 23-yard catch and drew a drive-extending holding penalty against Trent McDuffie on third down in overtime. What changed? The Chiefs found their own hero. A random player always seems to emerge with a big game in the Super Bowl for the Chiefs. To the ranks of Bashad Breeland and Damian Williams, we can add a player who was highlighted as an X-factor both in the Super Bowl preview and in the live podcast that I did from Las Vegas with Mina Kim's Dominique Boxworth and Kevin Clark. Leo Chanel, welcome to Immortality. As expected, the 49ers carved out a heavy workload for fullback Kyle Jusek, who had an early catch and played 59% of the offensive snaps. And, as expected, the Chiefs generally matched by playing their base defense, which meant that Chanel on the field at linebacker alongside Nick Bolton and Willie Gay. Chanel had a huge game. 
He forced the early McCaffrey fumble that prevented the Chiefs from falling behind on the opening possession. He's the one who blocked the Moody extra point, limiting the 49ers to a three-point lead and changing the course of the rest of the fourth quarter. He also hit Jennings for a loss of eight yards on a frantic checkdown from Brock Purdy, where he formed an excellent one-two in defending a boot concept alongside George Karlaftis. The other unlikely hero was Hardman, who was ignominiously traded from the Jets in midseason. He had a 77-yard day in the meaningless Week 18 game against the Chargers, but in competitive contest, his second stint with the Chiefs had produced 10 catches for 46 yards and three runs for a combined minus two yards. His most notable contribution had been fumbling through the end zone for a touchback against the Bills in the divisional round, a move that led Reed to limit Hartman to one offensive snap against the Ravens the following week. With Kadarius Toney inactive and Sky Moore failing to play a single snap, though, Hartman found a role and ran with it. He brought in the 52-yarder that served as Kansas City's only explosive play on offense for a chunk of that game. With a title looming, the Chiefs went back to Hardman, used him on the corndog motion, and got him open for a Lombardi-clinching score. While Hardman's red zone work has been disastrous, the threat of him on the jet sweep had to be an alert for the 49ers, and it allowed the Chiefs to get a wide-open receiver in the flat with a championship on the line. Shannon the scapegoat? One trope that comes up repeatedly in dramatic losses, especially about a team that has come up just short, is landing on a scapegoat for the defeat. Two weeks ago, it was easier to blame Lions coach Dan Campbell than it was to point the finger at Kendall Vildor, Jalmir Gibbs, Josh Reynolds, and Taylor Decker, or an absent pass rush apart from Adam Hutchinson. Quarterbacks and head coaches get a disproportionate amount of the praise when teams succeed and can get a similar percentage of the blame when they fail. You're probably going to hear one stat in every piece of Super Bowl coverage you consume this week. Kyle Shanahan has now lost three Super Bowls after holding a double-digit lead. I wrote about Shanahan's role in each of the first two defeats. When the Patriots came back from a 28-3 deficit to beat the Falcons, I criticized the then-Falcons offensive coordinator for throwing the ball at the end of a drive when two runs and a field goal probably would have ended the game. When the Chiefs came back to beat the 49ers at the end of the 2020 season, I didn't take issue with Shanahan's play calling, but it was clear to see his lack of aggression and refusal to trust an excellent offense came back to bite him in a 31-20 defeat. He obviously deserved credit for helping his teams get those leads, but after seeing him play it conservatively in other big games, resulting in both wins and losses, I was concerned that he would be at a disadvantage with the game management again on Sunday. While nobody feels good about losing in the Super Bowl, I can't raise those same complaints about Shanahan's decision-making this time. The 49ers didn't use their timeouts at the end of the first half to try to get the ball back while the Chiefs were deep in their territory, 
and he sent McCaffrey out for a meaningless six-yard run instead of simply kneeling with 20 seconds left to end the half. Those weren't dramatically damaging to his team. Instead, Shanahan made arguably one of the most aggressive decisions he has ever made as a coach, and it nearly helped his team win the game. Facing a fourth and three in the red zone while trailing 13-10 early in the fourth quarter, I'm not sure that anybody expected him to do anything besides send out Moody for a short field goal. A kick would have tied the game, and after Campbell was lambasted by the media for being aggressive in the NFC title game, Shanahan didn't seem likely to get aggressive. ESPN's win probability models showed going for it to be a slight favorite and a 1% win probability swing. Shanahan hasn't always made decisions in line with win probability models, but he chose to do so here. He left his offense on the field, and Purdy found George Kittle for a three-yard conversion. Two plays later, Purdy hit Jennings for a touchdown. Instead of simply taking the points and tying the game, Shanahan's offense stayed on the field and took the lead instead. The 49ers then failed on the extra point, which was taken from the 15-yard line, the exact distance from which Moody would have attempted his field goal to tie the game. Instead, the worst decision of the game was called by Reed, who helped swing the last Super Bowl game between these two by attempting and converting a fourth and short on an early touchdown drive. In the third quarter, the Chiefs faced a fourth and one on their own 11 and elected to punt. While the risk of turning the ball over in your own territory is huge, the likelihood of conversion and the reality that a punt will still give the opposition solid field position makes going for it in those situations a better proposition than many may think. The Ravens, notably, went for it on 4th and 1 on their own 34-yard line in the AFC title game two weeks ago, converted, and then scored their only touchdown of the game. I'm going to rely on the NFL's next-gen stats model here, which had the ball at six-tenths of a yard away from being converted for a first down. By this model, Reed cost the Chiefs 5.1 points of win probability by punting as opposed to attempting to move the chains. The Chiefs had been stuffed in short yardage, but as we saw with the Mahomes triple option concept, the Chiefs would later hit for a pair of first downs. There were other ways to pick up that half yard or so. Did Shanahan make a mistake in overtime? When Harrison Butker's kick sent the game into overtime, the Chiefs and 49ers became the first two teams to play under the league's new playoff overtime format instituted after that legendary Bills-Chiefs game from the 2021 postseason. Unlike regular season overtime, which can end on an opening drive touchdown, Playoff overtime guarantees both teams a chance to touch the ball and for the team that gets the ball second to match what the first team did on their drive before the game goes to sudden death. The 49ers won the coin toss, and Shanahan elected to take the ball first. Since it's the first time that anyone has had to make that decision, and a coach who has lost twice in the Super Bowl subsequently lost a third time, he has naturally come in for some criticism about his choice. I'll start this one with the answer. 
I agree with Shanahan's decision, in part because neither choice a coach can make is clearly better than the other. There's an obvious benefit to deferring and getting the second possession of overtime in that a team gets to see what happens first, which can then inform decision-making throughout the drive. When the 49ers kicked a field goal, the Chiefs knew that they had to at least match with a field goal if they want to win. Having that knowledge allows the other team to make more informed decisions about play calling and decision making, which has its own intrinsic value. This came up when the Chiefs faced a fourth and one on their own 34-yard line. If the Chiefs had started overtime with the ball and didn't have any sort of score established, Reed might consider punting deep in that situation and hoping his team can get the ball back on defense, knowing that a stuff would already leave the 49ers in field goal range for a title-winning kick. Instead, since Reed knew he needed a field goal, they went for it, converted, and eventually scored a touchdown to win the game. As Shanahan noted in his post-game news conference, the value of getting the ball first is to get in position to have the third possession of overtime where you can win with a field goal and without having to hand the ball back to your opponent. If you take the ball and start with a touchdown, you're putting your opponent in an incredibly difficult bind, giving that they both have to score a touchdown to match you and come up with a stop on the next drive to get the ball back. Indeed, I suspect teams that get the ball second and need a touchdown to tie will try to win the game by going for two after their score. Canahan's offense was able to produce only a field goal on the opening possession, but even then, a stop from the defense at any point would have won the game, while the Chiefs would have been incentivized to kick a field goal to extend the game if they faced a fourth down within kicking range. On top of that, Shanahan's defense was likely exhausted after an 11-play drive from Kansas City at the end of regulation. Remember that the 49ers stopped the Chiefs on a three-and-out in the third quarter, but after being rushed back onto the field after the muffed punt, Wilkes' defense immediately allowed a touchdown pass to Valdez Scantling on the first play of the new possession. Whether you want to focus on the game theory side of the equation or the human element of chasing down Mahomes again after a short break, choosing to go with the offense first probably was the right call for Shanahan. Per Kalen Taylor of The Athletic, several Chiefs players said that they were going to start overtime on defense if they won the coin toss, so it doesn't sound like it would have played out differently if Kansas City had been the one making the decision. Should Shanahan be criticized for getting away from the run? Again, I'm not seeing it. The 49ers ran the ball just over 45% of the time in the first half and 42.5% of the time in the second half and overtime. Purdy threw the ball six straight times and on nine of the 49ers' first 10 plays in the third quarter, but that's probably because the Chiefs were loading up the box and daring him to throw. The 49ers spent that entire sequence behind schedule because none of the passes worked. McCaffrey's lone run went for no gain. While the offense got going again, it was with the passing game, which produced gains of 17, 9, and 20 yards across a four-play span to get in position for the fourth down conversion and the touchdown pass to Jennings. 
The 49ers ran the ball 17 times in the second half, but those runs produced only two first downs. Nine of their 11 first downs after Usher's halftime appearance came via the pass or the penalty. Pinning the loss on Purdy would also be too simplistic. It wasn't his best game, but he didn't look overawed by defensive coordinator Steve Spagnuolo's exotic blitzes. The 49ers left a few plays on the field, in part because of some passes that fell into the window between drops and misplaced passes, particularly the one to Debo Samuels. When Purdy's first read was there, he was generally excellent on throws within three seconds of getting the ball. The second-year quarterback went 17 of 22 for 189 yards and a 9.7% completion percentage over expectation. After three seconds, he was just 6 of 16 for 66 yards with a minus 13.7. When he didn't get the look that he expected or hoped to see, he seemed to struggle getting deep into his progression or creating out of the or creating out of structure. For the 49ers, agonizingly, this might have been their best shot at winning a title over the next few years. They are the league's third oldest team and got mostly healthy seasons from their stars beyond safety, Tano Noah Hofango with a knee injury, until Greenlaw tore his Achilles. They're yet to feel the impact of the missing first-round talent from the Trey Lance deal in 2021, and with Purdy making $870,000, they have been able to spread the money for their quarterback position elsewhere on the roster. While they've been consistently competitive, it's tough to count on winning the one seed while having everyone who's playing well now playing at the same level next season. Ask the Eagles, who looked like favorites to make it back to the Super Bowl this time last year and fell apart during December and January. The real MVP, again. When these two teams played in Super Bowl 54, Mahomes won the MVP award. While giving the appropriate praise to Mahomes for leading a comeback victory, I felt like the best player on the field was defensive tackle Chris Jones. Well, here we are four years later, and while Mahomes won the real Super Bowl MVP award, the bliss the best player on the field was a guy harassing Purdy all night, playing with what might have been his final game in a Chiefs uniform. Jones dominated at the line of scrimmage. While he didn't record a sack, NFL Next Gen Stats credited him with six pressures, second only to Bosa's 10. As was the case with the last game between these two, Bosa also would have been my MVP pick if the 49ers had won. Jones didn't score any touchdowns, but he forced two plays that should have been touchdowns into incompletions with pressure. One came early in the fourth quarter when Samuel badly beat Snead on a play-action concept. Purdy was rolling out and saw Samuel get open, but Jones defeated right guard Spencer Burford, who came in for the injured John Feliciano. Jones's pressure forced an incompletion, although the 49ers would get their touchdown later on the drive. On the final offensive snap of the season for the 49ers, Jones saved a touchdown. Here, he got some help. The 49ers didn't block him or blitzing safety Justin Reed, as it appeared the right tackle Colton McKivitz worked to get 
worked to the wrong defender. Jones ran free and forced a wild incompletion from Purdy. If he had had time, Purdy might have seen Snead slip in coverage against Brandon Ayuk, leaving the star wide out wide open for an easy touchdown. He also had Jennings on a pivot route to the outside for a first down. Jones also forced the check down to Jennings that lost eight yards, while his penetration on a third and two, McCaffrey run, forced the back to cut outside where he lost a yard on the snap that set up the decision to go for it on fourth and three. The Chiefs blitzed more than 57% of the time when Jones wasn't on the field and produced a pressure rate of only 14%. Spagnolo dropped the blitz rate by more than 10 points when Jones was between the lines, but the plays with the star tackle on the field produced a pressure rate north of 51%. Jones was essential. Spagnolo also had a great game with a critical pressure coming out of the two-minute warning, serving as the most obvious and memorable snap of the game for the stalwart defensive coordinator. Facing a third and five on the Kansas City 35, a 49ers conversion would have forced the Chiefs to use their final two timeouts and start worrying about whether they would ever get the ball back. Instead, Bagnulu sent a six-man blitz and managed to get McDuffie, who was excellent all game, unblocked on the left side of the line. The 2022 first-round pick leaped and batted away Purdy's would-be slant to Jennings, forcing the 49ers to attempt a long field goal. Kittle was in the backfield, and you could argue the tight end should have scanned and come across the formation to block McDuffie, but I'm not sure that he would have gotten there quickly enough, and there was pressure on him from the existing side. Those plays will loom in 49ers' hearts for years to come. Convert the third and five, and they might have been able to run down the clock before a field goal attempt. Pick up a touchdown on the opening drive of overtime, and they would have put the Chiefs into a nearly impossible bind. Stop the Chiefs on fourth and one, and they're throwing a parade. Last time, it was a deep pass that just fell through the hands of Emmanuel Sanders that would have given the 49ers a late lead. This time, it was a bevy of missed opportunities to seal things. Shanahan and company will do whatever it takes to make it back to the Super Bowl. Next time, though, they'll probably be hoping that Mahomes, Jones, and Spagnuolo aren't on the other sideline. This is an interesting article from the Associated Press that came out this morning. 49ers players say that they didn't know the Super Bowl overtime rules. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs capitalized on the NFL's postseason overtime rules to once again beat the 49ers in the Super Bowl. While several Chiefs players and coaches said that they had a prepared strategy in the event that the Super Bowl went to overtime, multiple 49ers players admitted that they were not even aware of the rules. I didn't even know about the new playoff overtime rule, so it was a surprise to me, says Niners defensive lineman Eric Armstead. I didn't even really know what was going on in terms of that. Sunday night's game was the second of 58 Super Bowls to be tied after regulation. It was the first played under new overtime rules that ensure that both teams get a chance to possess the ball before the game ends, unless the first drive in overtime ends with a safety. This differs from the rules 
governing overtime in the regular season where the game ends if the first team to possess the ball scores a touchdown. After winning the overtime coin toss, the 49ers elected to receive the ball to start the extra period. But their 13-play drive ended with Jake Moody's 27-yard field goal and set the stage for Mahomes, who orchestrated his own 13-play drive punctuated by a game-winning three-yard touchdown pass to McCauley Hartman that sealed the Chief 25-22 victory. Niners coach Kyle Shanahan said he and his analytics staff discussed overtime possibilities before the game, but Armstead and fullback Kyle Juzic both said that overtime strategy was not discussed with the players leading up to the Super Bowl. You know what? I didn't even realize the playoff rules were different in overtime, Jusic said. I assume you just want the ball to score a touchdown and win. I guess that's not the case. I don't totally know the strategy there. We hadn't talked about it. Armstead added that he first realized that the postseason overtime rules were different when he saw them displayed on the scoreboard at the stadium. They put it on the scoreboard and everyone was like, oh, even if you score, they still get a chance. The Chiefs conversely said that they were well prepared for an overtime contingency in the postseason. Defensive lineman Chris Jones told reporters that Kansas City talked for two weeks about new overtime rules, while safety Justin Reed said that their preparation began in training camp. We talked about it all year, Reed said. We talked about it in training camp, about how the rules were different in regular season versus the playoffs. Every week of the playoffs, we talked about the overtime rule. Jones said that if the Niners had scored a touchdown on their opening overtime possession to take a seven-point lead, the Chiefs were prepared to go for two if they scored on their ensuing possession. We knew what our game plan was, had we won the coin toss, whether we want to defer or not, and what our plan was from there, Reed said. And just as an aside, the first overtime game in Super Bowl history was in 2017 with the New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons. If you are one of those that like to gamble, this article will be of interest to you. This article is by David Purdom and Doug Greenberg. They are ESPN staff writers, and it came out this morning on ESPN.com. As kickoff approached Sunday, sportsbooks were almost unanimously rooting for the favored San Francisco 49ers to win in a low-scoring Super Bowl. Late in the fourth quarter, everything was going the book's way, and then the game went into overtime. The underdog Kansas City Chiefs rallied from behind in overtime to pull out that 25-22 win behind another Super Bowl MVP performance from Patrick Mahomes resulting in a big swing in favor of the betting public. The Chiefs covered the spread as two-point underdogs, and the game went into over the consensus closing total of 46.5. Both were good results for the betting public, as was overtime. The odds of the game going to overtime as ESPNBET were 11-1, to 1, and multiple sports books reported lopsided action on the game going into overtime. Overtime was bad, says Craig Mucklow, vice president of trading for Caesars Sportsbook. He was our biggest loser of the prop bet. 
The betting public also made a big score on San Francisco running back Christian McCaffrey scoring a touchdown. But sportsbooks avoided a TD from Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, which was an extremely popular bet this week. As of Saturday at Caesars Sportsbook, there were more bets on McCaffrey and Kelsey to each score a touchdown than there were on the 49ers point spread and money line combined. It was a bad Super Bowl for the sportsbook, says Tristan Davis, senior trader for BetMGM, said in a company release. Many bettors had the Chiefs winning and overs on popular player groups. The over-under total had been at 47.5 or 47 for much of the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl, but dropped to 46.5 on Sunday at a lot of sportsbooks. The Chiefs led 13-10 entering the fourth quarter. Kansas City scored the winning touchdown in overtime and did not have to kick an extra point that it would have pushed the game over all the early numbers. The Chiefs force overtime and then win. There is nothing that could have been worse, says John Murray, executive director of Sportsbook in Las Vegas. Sportsbooks experience what is expected to be a record betting interest on the Super Bowl throughout the week, with at least $8 million, $8 million bets reported, most of them on the 49ers. The bet ticker really lit up with six-figure wagers about 12 o'clock Pacific time, Mucklow said. The big bets were on the 49ers, and the majority of the wagers were on the Chiefs. The Holmes was named Super Bowl MVP, and he was around a plus 135 to win the award this week at Sportsbook. So good for the bettors, bad for Sportsbook, and that's a good thing. Believe it or not, we are running out of time already. So we will save some of the other football news for next week. And just as a preview, the commanders will have a new head coach in Dan Quinn. We'll get to know him. And the also the commanders hired Cowboys defensive coordinator uh, Dan Quinn as their new coach. Like I said, we're going to talk about that. And we have the Football Hall of Fame uh, class. And we also have the 2024 NFL honors and the league's biggest awards. So we'll get to all of that next week. But right now, we are going to turn to baseball as spring training, believe it or not, is already underway. This article came out on February 11th by Kyle Newman in the, it appears in the Denver Post. This is the Rockies 2024 Spring Training Guide with all of the key dates. So spring training is from February 15th, which is Thursday, through March 26th. It will take place at Salt River Fields at Hawking Stick in Scottsdale, Arizona, and other league ballparks within the Cactus League. So the key dates on February 15th, 15th is the first workout for pitchers and catchers. On February 20th, it's the first full squad workout. On February 23rd is the first Cactus League game versus Arizona at Salt River Fields. And that's a 110 mountain time start. On March 16th, Colorado prospects versus Arizona prospects at Salt River Fields. That's 510 p.m. mountain time. 
March 26 is the last Cactus League game versus Milwaukee at Salt River Fields. Notable offseason additions are right-hand pitcher Dakota Hudson, right-hand pitcher Cal Quantrill, catch and catcher Jacob Stallings. Notable offseason losses are left-handed pitcher Brett Suter, right-hand pitcher Chase Anderson, right-hand pitcher Tommy Doyle, left fielder Jerickson Profar, right-hand pitcher Chris Flexen, right-hand pitcher Connor Seabold, catcher Brian Servan, and catcher Austin Wins. Don't know exactly the schedule for the televised games, but here are the radio games, which will be on 850 KOA, 850 AM, and 94.1 FM, and that's KOA Radio. On February 23rd versus the Diamondbacks, February 24th, also the Diamondbacks, February 25th, the Brewers, February 26th, the Dodgers, March 2nd versus the Reds. All of those games are 1.10 p.m. games. On March 3rd, the Rockies will play the Dodgers. That is a 105 start. March 4th versus the Giants. That's at 1.10. March 8th at, at the Angels. That's also 1.10. March 10th with the Brewers. March 12th with the Royals. March 19th with the Guardians. March 25th at the Brewers, and March 26th versus the Brewers, and all of those games are 2.10 p.m. So we have a lot to look forward to. It's a fresh start, and it's going to be a wonderful baseball season. So speaking of Rockies, this article by Patrick Saunders he also writes for the Denver Post. This came out on January 23rd. Todd Helton, arms folded across his chest, nervously paced the living room of his home in Knoxville, Tennessee, on Tuesday afternoon. I haven't been superstitious for 10 years, not since I retired, the Rockies' iconic first baseman said. Today, I'm superstitious. I didn't look at anything. I didn't watch anything. I didn't look at the Internet. He could have spared himself the angst. Because fittingly, at 5.17 Eastern Time, number 17 got the call of a lifetime. Todd told that he had been selected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Helton pumped his fist and finally took a deep breath. It's the greatest honor that you can get as a baseball player, Helton said. Getting your number retired and getting elected to the Hall of Fame are the two greatest achievements that you can get. Still, Helton wasn't quite ready to let it all go. I'm going to go crazy when you all leave, he said. The sweet swinging Helton, the beloved heart and soul of the Rockies for 17 seasons and one of the most accomplished players of his era, received 79.7% of the vote, clearing the 75% bar required by the Hall of Fame in the Baseball Writers Association of America. Joining Helton in the class of 2024 are third baseman Andre Beltre and catcher Joe Maurer, and we talked about them last week. Helton, who played his entire career in Colorado, joins Larry Walker as the class of 2020 as the only two Rockies to be elected to the Hall. I tell you what, 162 games is a long season, but the fans in Colorado 
always energized me, he said. Helton, who's now 50, retired after the 2013 season with 2,519 hits, 369 home runs, 592 doubles, and a career batting average of 316. He was a five-time All-Star and three-time Golden Glove winner. Helton is one of only two players in baseball history to have at least 2,500 hits, 550 doubles, and 350 home runs and a career batting average of 315 or higher. Cardinals legend Stan Musial is the other. But the numbers on the back of Helton's baseball card only begin to explain why he'll be inducted into Cooperstown on July 21st. His work ethic, passion for baseball, and white-hot desire to win made him special. He brought a mixture of Tennessee charm, biting wit, and steely intelligence to the Rockies clubhouse, and he was a warrior on the diamond. Very early on, I realized that Todd was a baseball player with a football player's mentality, remembered former Rockies manager Clint Hurdle, who first got to know Helton in 1995, when Hurdle was Colorado's minor league hitting coordinator. Todd wouldn't play angry, but he wouldn't be like Michael Miguel Cabrera, smiling and laughing. Todd's joy was defined differently. His joy was defined by beating your ass. Elton, a native of Knoxville, Tennessee, attended Central High School and earned a football scholarship to the University of Tennessee, where he was famously replaced by NFL Hall of Fame and former Broncos quarterback, Peyton Manning. I used to watch Todd take batting practice at Tennessee, Manning recalled. It just had a different sound to it when he was taking batting practice. I certainly knew that he was a special talent. I have enjoyed following him all of these years, even before I got to Denver. We've always kept in touch, and I've always appreciated his friendship. He took so much pride in his craft, and he was very much a student of the game, even though he had so much natural talent. So it was a no-brainer for me. He's a Hall of Fame baseball player and a Hall of Fame friend as well. Helton's wife, Christy, admitted that she was a nervous wreck all day and was overcome when Helton was elected. It was terribly hard waiting, but deep down I thought he was going to get in, she said. He put everything he had into his career. Todd never played for himself, but I know that this mattered a lot to him. Baseball was Helton's true calling from a young age. His late father, Jerry, a catcher in the Minnesota Twins organization in 68 and 69, taught Helton how to hit in the garage of their Knoxville home. He made a batting tee from a washing machine hose and hit, and I hit off of that, Helton once recalled. I was just five years old. The lessons learned in that garage were at the root of Helton's prowess at the plate. He became a line drive hitter with power and the ability to hit the ball to all fields. After all, if Helton pulled the ball into his dad's garage, he'd den his dad's fiberglass fishing boat parked in the corner. Helton took a moment Tuesday to reflect on his father, who passed away in 2015. My dad would have lost his mind today, Helton said. My dad was very hard on me, but when I would do bad, which was one for three when I was little, he'd say, one for three gets you in the Hall of Fame. Well, that's about all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury.
If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.